Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukie, senior editor and the host of Babbage. And today I'm joined by Jason Palmer and Ananyo Bhattacharya, two of our science correspondents. In this episode, we'll discuss new ways to interpret data by using sound. And we'll consider a new study that suggests that memories are not lost in Alzheimer's patients. Jason, this week you're writing about how scientific data is being turned into sound. Explain more. Well, uh, broadly, it's called sonification. And you may have heard of this kind of thing before. It ends up being the sort of thing that sounds good on radio news, right? It's whoosh, that's the sound of the cosmos and that kind of thing. The truth is that most often that's kind of done after the fact. After the science has been done, you can, you know, kind of turn this into a sound and it's a, a good public engagement exercise. And the idea of turning data into sound is not at all new. But what strikes me and what I've been writing about is how much actual discovery is going on in the sounds. It turns out that our ears are better than our eyes for some kinds of data in certain cases and so on. And there are, there's an increasing number of real findings that came about simply because people listened to the data. So why is it that our ears in some cases are better than our eyes? And in what cases are those? It, broadly, your eyes are good at spatial stuff, right? You can discern movement and slight changes in sort of where things are placed and so on. The ears, in, in turn, are good for timing. So where the eyes are good at the space, your ears are good at time. You can discern tiny, tiny differences in, in frequency. You can hear across a great many frequencies, three orders of magnitude in frequency. Perhaps the most important thing is that you can distinguish very, very small intervals of time. If I play you two sort of clicks, one after the other, they can get very, 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 very close together in time that you can still discern them as two clicks. If instead I played you sort of two flashes one after another, you wouldn't be able to discern quite so short a time period. So it's mostly about sort of things that can be depicted in time. It turns out, of course, a lot of scientific data is, is taken in this way. If these data aren't taken in the frequency range that you can hear anyway, is just shift them to a frequency you can hear. It turns out the ear is very good at picking up anomalies in what turns out to be sounds. So in what sort of applications has this technique been applied? Well, it seems to have really taken root in astronomy, and that's in part because a lot of astronomical data is taken in that way. Every, you know, you send up these satellites that gather, you know, every two seconds or every 20 minutes or whatever it is, they gather a data point, and then you end up with this huge data set, uh, which can then be shifted into to audible sounds. One person who's sort of been very good at, at advocating this stuff is a fellow called Robert Alexander. He works at the University of Michigan, but was a fellow at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, where he made all kinds of discoveries, as well as some musical compositions, it should be said, but found some things in data from satellites that look at the, the solar wind, the, the stream of particles coming from the sun. So now we're going to play some sound clips from Robert Alexander's data sets, and you can help us distinguish what it is. So there are three of these, all from the, the wind satellite, again, uh, one of these satellites that's uh, parked out there in space just gathering up particle data from the solar wind. The first one is where kind of nothing is happening. Standard sort of the breeze from the sun when nothing in particular is going on.
Okay, so wind has been up there gathering data for over 20 years now. There is just reams and reams and reams of this stuff. How do you go through it? You can use, you can plot these things out on multidimensional graphs. You can uh, use your algorithms looking for things and so on. But what Robert Alexander found was that if you turn these into sonifications, audifications, specifically this kind of, you know, one-time access into a sound, you can sometimes hear interesting things. So let's hear the second clip. Okay, so now that sounds not totally different than the first one. Well, there is a little bit of a whooshing sound in there. I mean, and, you know, sometimes this stuff is very subtle. Sometimes it's so subtle you can't find it with your eyes or your algorithms, right? But the ear can pick these things up. This is actually, I think, a, a fairly straightforward example from Audification. What we're hearing here is what's called a proton cyclotron wave storm, which is an awesome name for a thing, right? Of course um, we are. <laughs> um, it's just about the swirling of particles in the solar wind. And the point is to figure out sort of how these things come about, where they come from, when they occur and so on. And it turns out to pop up fairly easily in the audification. Great. And so now we're going to listen to the third one. Okay, that's just me. I'm kidding. Let's hear the third clip. Jason Decipher. Well, quite. The point is that this is something that's been found in the wind data that we still don't know what it is. I mean, the interesting thing here is not just that, you know, you listen to things and boom, you then find it, right? And then you have it explained. The sounds can't tell you explicitly a great deal about the physics in this case. But what the ear can do is kind of point you in the direction of things you might not otherwise have found. This is completely analogous, by the way, to how a lot of seismologists worked in the 60s. They set up a whole bunch of seismometers recording the sort of the tremblings on magnetic tape that would just run for days and weeks and weeks. Now you've got this, this tape with, like, weeks of data on it. How are you going to listen to it? They just played it back at high speed. They just listened, basically, for any sort of blips. It's not that they absolutely had to use the ear to find what was going on. It just turns out to be an easy way. It points you in the direction, aids in figuring out where the interesting stuff is. Okay, so we have understood data for centuries, and we have collected information for thousands of years. But the line chart and the bar chart and the pie graph was all created around the late 1700s by William Playfair. At what point do we need a revolution in the way to depict sound to make it meaningful to the ear so that people can cognitively appreciate what they're listening to? Well, there's kind of a couple of questions in there. So the line graph and the bar graph of yore are kind of insufficient in a lot of ways for appreciating what has become like this this flood of high-dimensional, multi-dimensional data. So if, so if I have a bunch of sensors on, it doesn't matter, on my network, right? I have a bunch of sensors on a human uh, recovering from a stroke. I have a bunch of sensors on a satellite, what have you. Lots and lots and lots of data streams that are contemporaneous, right? Lines on your graph, what have you. There's only so many dimensions you can show on one of these graphs before you are visually completely overloaded. This is where the ear really comes in. If we do what's called parameter mapping, so this is a different kind of sonification where you specifically you make sort of aesthetic choices as to which data stream you will assign to what things. So if I listen to an orchestra, right, I know I can listen to all kinds of different instruments, each with its own timbre. Yep. I can listen to, you know, which one of these people isn't quite on right on pitch, who's behind the beat there in the bassoons, whatever it is. I can process all of that completely in parallel and still busily make decisions about whether or not it's a, a good piece or not, right? The ear is really good at this kind of, you know, hugely multidimensional kind of processing, but also at baselining noise. So if I'm walking through the rainforest and there's birds chirping and there's bugs clicking and I'm um, crunching through leaves and so on, 
after a while, all of that just kind of baselines. I don't really hear anything. It just kind of fades into the background. Whereas when some predator is coming at me, right, I can hear that. Our hearing and our processing of what we're hearing is very good at getting rid of what is kind of just the baseline, the background. That's really interesting. Thank you very much. Thanks. From the sonification of sound, now let's move on to lost memories. Ananyo, you're looking at Alzheimer's disease this week, and you're looking at new research that suggests that the memories aren't lost, they just need to be better retrieved. What's going on? Yeah, that's right, Ken. So this is a study by uh, Dr. Susumu Tonegawa and his colleagues at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and they've used mice that are genetically modified to develop Alzheimer's disease. You might be wondering how good are the memories of mice anyway, but in the wild, actually, mice have pretty remarkable memories. They don't hibernate over the autumn months. They hide their food in little underground burrows, and then they can return many, many weeks later to find them again. It's safe to say that given that I lose my pen every other hour, that if I was a mouse, I would not survive my first winter, but they do. These Alzheimer's mice, though, are different. Uh, By the time they're seven months old, they're becoming quite forgetful. That's displaying the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, which in a human patient uh, can last for years. Uh, By the time they're nine months old, their brains are riddled with these amyloid plaques, these plaques of protein called amyloid beta, uh, which you also see in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. Then how did researchers track memories in the Alzheimer's mice? So what the team did was subject the mice to a standard lab test of memory. They put the mice in a box and give them a small electric shock. Then they take them out, and the next day they put the mice back in the box. Now, the normal mice, when they're subjected to this, they freeze the second time that they're put into the box because they remember that they had this awful shock to their feet, and so they just freeze in fear. The Alzheimer's mice, though, caper around the box quite happily. So we know from that that the Alzheimer's mice, within 24 hours, have already forgotten what they had learnt the day before. Now, using optogenetics, Dr. Tonagawa's team was able to stimulate a part of the mouse brain called dentate gyrus. And this is known uh, to store fearful memories in mice. And so they stimulated this uh, part of the brain with light, and suddenly these Alzheimer's mice, when they were placed back in the box, froze in fear as well. So what's the impact of the research for human beings? So if these results are found to be true in human beings, this overturns quite a lot of thinking to date on how Alzheimer's affects the brain. Um, The thinking so far had been that memories are lost in Alzheimer's because there is a problem with the way that these memories are being stored and encoded in the brain. What this research suggests is actually the memories are still there somewhere. They just need to be recovered. And it's that pathway to recovering them that is damaged. The impact of that is that one day, either if we manage somehow to adapt this optogenetic technique for humans, or we find a drug that can stimulate the recall pathway, we might be able to recover those lost memories that go missing in early stage Alzheimer's patients. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. That's all for this episode. If you have anything to say about this week's show, you can find us on Twitter at EconSciTech and on our Facebook page. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, 
This is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.